Welcome to the Think and Learn Smarter experience. Here I will sit down with people from all walks of life and talk with them about experiences that have shaped them. Everyone learns from their own experiences, but the best learn from the experiences of others. Now, let's get into it. So today I'm here with Cora Staunton. Uh, Cora pretty much doesn't need any introduction. Uh, she's probably considered to be the greatest ga- ladies' gaily footballer of all time, playing in a, about 21 all Ireland finals, club and county combined. And uh, then at the age of 35, decides to go and play a professional sport. And even just there this week, was named in the team of the year. Uh, Cora, thanks, William, for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it a lot. No bother at all, Colin. Delighted to be on. And so how hard did you find moving, like, even back from Ireland just even this year? Because you had the quarantine on Christmas Day and all that, and even just to get the season started. Yeah, so obviously it was a bit bit difficult this um, this year around. Normally um, I, I head out to Australia, normally in November time, depending on when um, our club championship would be over. Um, I normally head out after that. Um, and I'm normally out here to kind of May-June time. Um, obviously, it was a little bit different this year because we couldn't get to Australia, but obviously because of COVID, there was very little flights um, going. So um, eventually we got out. Um, I think we left Ireland on the 7th of December. Uh, pre-season probably had started about a month at that stage. Um, so, yeah, I had, to, had a pretty long flight from um, Ireland to from Dublin to Perth um, through London and Singapore, so I ended up being nearly... A 60-plus flight, 60-plus hour flight, then um, arrived in Perth and brought to hotel quarantine yeah, and spent 14 days in hotel quarantine and got out um, at 3, 3 p.m. on Christmas Day. So, yeah, a little bit different. Um, yeah, then um, flew to Melbourne that night and, yeah, kind of into training straight away and, and obviously COVID hit Sydney. So all our team were moved to regional New South Wales for two weeks and then Adelaide for, for three or four weeks. So, yeah, I was pro- probably on the road for for nearly eight and a half weeks before I finally got to Sydney sometime in mid-February. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like you settled into Sydney now these days? Like, I know you wouldn't be living there year-round, but you've been there three or four years at this stage now. Yeah, I, I'm well settled. This is my fourth fourth season over here with the Giants. So, um, yeah, most season, most of the time I do probably about six to seven months in Sydney and, and the rest in Ireland. Where um, one year in 2019, I spent 11 months here. I just went home for a month. That was after I broke my leg. I, I stayed over for longer just obviously to do my rehab. So, um, yeah, well used to the place now. Um, yeah, so um, no most most of the spots at this stage. Um, still rely on Google Maps probably to get around um, to some places. But, yeah, yeah. Um, well settled in and yeah, know a lot of people over here now, which is good. Yeah, there is actually a decent Irish, Irish uh, contingent out there as well, because a few of my friends lived in uh, Sydney for a year and I went out around, actually arrived on Christmas Day as well a few years ago. And like, yeah, you're dead right that, that getting around the city can be a bit tricky, that's for sure. But sure, look, they have that train that goes over the Sydney Harbour Bridge. So it's always some view in fairness when you're going over that. Um, but yeah, fact- exactly. Yeah, there's, there's a good Irish community out here, so... Yeah, even GEA, I'd, I'd often go out and, and watch a bit of GEA or take a training session or two. So, yeah, there's, there's lots of Irish here. Definitely. And you just touched earlier on on uh, like that quadruple leg break. How was that? Would that have been the hardest injury to come back from? Because you broke your jaw, tore the ACL. But at the age of 37, like it would have been, you know, in decades gone by, it would have been considered a career ending injury. But you're here playing professional sports afterwards. Yeah, it was, yeah, obviously, it was probably, yeah, it was definitely the most challenging injury I had. Obviously, 
you know, broken jaws is fine. All you can do is wait for, for the bones to heal and you don't have to, to you know, do anything. ACL obviously is, is a little bit more trickier. And, um, you know, I, I I was lucky I came back quite quickly from my ACL. I, I played with a torn one for, for about five years. So, um, yeah, certainly the leg break um, and the extent of the damage that I'd done and the recovery was quite hard because I had to le- learn how to walk again. Um, I had to learn how to jump, hop, skip, everything, um, jog. I, so, yeah, I had to retrain everything. It wasn't just oh, that my, my leg is healed, I can walk again. Those, it, you know, because of the seriousness of the break and because I had nerve damage done as well, I had to retrain everything, which obviously was difficult, was frustrating. Um, yeah, and obviously put in a lot of... Lot of hours in rehab, trying to trying to get back and trying to get back in time, but obviously you know trying to get back in good shape. So, yeah, certainly the the first six months of rehab were, were very very tough. But yeah, I, I was lucky. I think I was back, you know, in full training kind of seven months after, and I think I played you know my first game probably eight months after. So, yeah, certainly the first six months and probably the first four at least were very tricky trying to get back. Even just up, as I said, walking and jogging were probably um, the two big two hardest things to try and get back and do. Mm-hmm. and uh, one thing that a lot of people would say is a big difference between amateur and like professional sports is like the recovery time or maybe even the the chance to recover do you reckon that helped helped a bit with your like with your leg break like we'll say if you're back in mayo back playing club football would do you think you would have been able to come back as quickly or what, what would you say yeah probably not i think it's um it's more so the expertise and probably the the facilities that you have here and yeah obviously you know i wasn't working so you know i if I had to try and work and rehab it at the same time, if I was in Ireland, you know, it just wouldn't be possible because I was probably given at least, um, you know, 24, 25 hours a week to rehab. And that was like solely just within the gym um, or without, without uh, on the pitch. That wasn't even other stuff. Um, yeah. So th- that point of view helped, but also, um, you know, I had a full-time strength conditioning coach that was there for, I'd say, 90% of my sessions with me you know I had you know obviously a really good physio on hand as well so yeah just the medically over here as well like everything I needed from you know scans to whatever access I needed to medical help was probably the biggest thing you know I had you know if I needed to scan I had it you know within 24 hours or you know especially obviously as I said I had nerve damage in my leg which affected obviously my movement in my toes so you know I had to do a lot of tests to figure what, what was wrong there so all of that, I, I just don't think you'd have had, had access um, to it in Ireland. And yeah, certainly would have made the recovery longer. So yeah, I was lucky, um, you know, where I was and there was in a professional environment and that small things down to even when I broke my leg, they made sure I had the best surgeon, um, you know, leg surgeon in, in Sydney um, fixing it. So yeah, that certainly did help and it was all done very, very quickly as well, which was, which was great. Mm-hmm. Like you've had a chance to be in high performing environments in like amateur, like club and county, and even out, out there as well. What would you say are kind of like the similarities between the two? Like, is it just the attitude of the players, or is it all to be like you know the reasons why they're high performing? No, I don't think it's the attitude of the players. I think any Gaelic footballers that you know will come across and, and try AFL, you know, um, you know, they more than likely succeed. Um, it's just the, as I said, it's the time that you can dedicate to sport rather than being at home. If you're an amateur, when I'm at home, I'm trying to work a nine to five job um, and then probably train five or six times a week. So my day at home might consist of getting up early to try and get a gym session um, in or trying to get off work early because I have to, you know, maybe travel. Um, you know, when we, I was with Mayo, we might be training in Athlone, so I might have to travel an hour and a half to training. 
and be there obviously an hour beforehand to prep and then travel an hour and a half home. So your days could end up being up for work, you know, at seven in the morning and sometimes it's getting home from Athlone at 12 o'clock at night and you have to get up for work again, you know, so you just don't have time to recover and, and rest and um, in the end you don't have time to get, to get um, everything out of yourself. So in a, in a semi-professional professional environment, you have that time. Um, also, the facilities obviously make make a big difference um, here in the Giants. Like we, we share the exact same facilities as the AFL men's team. So we have everything on hand, and fo- like whether it's, as I said, full-time strength conditioning, dietitian, psychologist, you know, whatever you need, you know, physios and masseuses, you have everything there um, when you train or if, if you're not training, even outside the training, where, you know, obviously we didn't have that in Mayo, so... Um, you know, or even when you're when you're playing with your club, so you have all the facilities. So you know, when you come out here, you, you have no excuse not to get better. The only thing that that won't make you better is your attitude. So, um, yeah, certainly when I come out here, having the time to recover and and, and spend time, you know, practicing um, skills and stuff like that, you just have the time. And then obviously you have the facilities, and you have coaches on hand, you know, twenty four seven whenever you need them. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, you kind of touched on the fact that you were kind of flat out, we'll say, nearly 7 a.m. to 12 p.m. with a, a full-time job and traveling to Mayo. If you had to pick, like, one thing you've picked up in the last few years, like a particular, maybe it's like if uh, the county teams had, a, like, a surgeon or they had a certain physio or a certain, like, approach to training, is there anything you'd bring back, uh, looking back now? Yeah, I suppose there's, pro- there's probably, you know, a few things. I suppose that over here they really emphasize recovery and um training here is probably more sen- more scientific than I ever had at home. Um, I'm not saying I always agree with it. I, I'd probably be very old school um, and probably always going to have that mentality. But yeah, certainly from a scientific point of view, like, you know, they know exactly every week in training how many kilometers that they want us to cover, um, you know, how much load we exactly get in our legs. Um, we do a huge amount in the gym and strength conditioning wise, which we which in, in, in Gaelic football and certainly in, in ladies, probably in the men's at home, it's different. They probably certainly wouldn't do anywhere near as that, as much as done as here. So, and that's because of the physicality of the sport. But um, I think, yeah, they're very scientific around managing your loads and looking out for, um, you know, um, exactly what you, what you should do. And, and that's all around prevention of injury and, you know, to try and get the best out of you and when it comes to match day. Um, and I certainly struggled when I came over first with that, you know, because a lot of the time you'd be pulled off off the off the pitch because you're doing too much kicking or you're overdoing it, um, and you know you've hit your you've hit your targets this week. Um, and I probably wouldn't have never been used to that. Um, and even from small things like you know, a training to be certain nights that want us to get up to maybe eight percent, and then the certain nights that you you want you to get up to top speed and. To me, when I'm training, I'm always training a full um, full throttle. So, you know, I'd oftentimes, I'd have, you know, our GPS guy or a strength conditioning coach or, or a physical coach coming out saying, okay, you need to slow down a little bit because you've hit your top speed a couple of times tonight. And, yeah, so they're very much um, all about worrying about load and, and from the back of that, injuries and stuff, you know, especially soft tissue injuries. So. Yeah, that's probably the biggest thing that they really look out for you um, from a, um, a welfare point of view around um, that you're going in as fresh as you can to match that. That probably doesn't happen as well at home. We probably do the same thing and our load isn't managed um, as it probably would be like over here. Mm-hmm. 
And do you think that like incessant need to be at 100% all the time, like stems from the fact that when you're much younger, we'll say like 11, 12, 13, 14, you're always kind of the youngest girl in the team. So you kind of really have to be at 100% to be competing. Yeah, I, I probably think it's just, yeah, it's it's very much an Irish thing, a GEA thing. Um, yeah, I, I think we're always, um, there's there's no half in, half out. We're always 100%. We're very competitive. Um, we're always wanted to be, whether it's you're doing a drill or if you're doing a sprint, whatever, we always want to be probably at the top. So I think sometimes it's just your competitive nature. Um, and I suppose... You know, I've been around a long time and that's what's worked for me for the last, you know, 20 plus years. So I'm very much why I changed that. Um, and that's probably taken me time to learn to, to try and change that can actually make you better. Um, and I suppose it's just old habits that you're you're used to training. You know, I'm used to never missing a training session, whether it was me or Karnikon, I'd always train all the time. And um, here they're very much, you know, they want you to be at your peak for match day um, or at home. It was just train train, play a match, train. There was never kind of take it easy or, or rest up for match day. Um, so, yeah, I, I just think it's down to what we're used to at home, but also down to very competitive nature, wanting to do well every time you train. Yeah. And will Brian say that competitive nature was kind of inherent, like you had it from the very start? Or like, because it's interesting because some people would be very like competitive as in like, I want to get to a certain goal, whereas other people will compare themselves to others and be like, I want to be the best player in the team. Did you have like any particular like we'll say mindset that you generally had like from a young age, or could you remember? No, like I don't think I had a, a, a mindset, but I was always very, very competitive, no matter what it was, no matter what sport I was playing, or if you know, it was just um, a game of cards or you know a board game or whatever it was. I was always very competitive. I always wanted to win. I think that probably came from an early age. I'm from a big family. Um, you know, I've a lot of brothers, you know, I've two brothers older than me, one younger than me. Um, so that was that probably maybe fighting for a bit of survival when I was younger. Um, so that competitive nature, you know, in out in the in the front lawn playing a game of soccer, whatever it was, you're always stuck in goal and your only way to make it out was, you know, um to show them that you're well able out there. So I suppose being a female in a male-dominated house or being a female in a male-dominated world as I was for a long time growing up, you always had to be better than everyone else to make it because you were the girl and, and you weren't the boy. So I think that competitive nature came very young and and certainly through primary school because we played so many different sports and I was the only girl that ever played them. Um, yeah, I, I just think I always knew that I had to be a little bit better to be accepted maybe. So that's, that's probably where that comes from. All right. And uh, one thing that stuck me when I was looking at uh, your career there is that how young you were at like making da- making the breakthroughs, and also like how young you were captaining. Like um, when you managed to, you're captaining Carnacon at sixteen, and you won the Mayo Championship. Like how did one thing I find hard to visualize? Like how would you have managed to like not even not motivate, but just be the leader in a team where you might be 10, 15 years younger than people? How, how did you find that? Yeah, I suppose. Um... I suppose growing up, obviously, I broke into the Mayo team when when I was thirteen. So, yeah, by the time I was playing Garnicone, I probably three or four seasons, you know, with the Mayo seniors under my belt. So, um, yeah, and you know, at that stage, I had probably you know captained obviously Mayo under sixteens and minor teams as well. So, um, yeah, I, I think at that, but by that stage, I was captaining Garnicone. I was probably well. Um, well versed in the game at that stage and had had a lot of number of years with both Mayo underage and, and the senior team under my belt. So, um, yeah, I, I I think people kind of seen even you know 
back to when I was probably 10 and 11 and playing in, with Karen O'Connor and Mosney and stuff like that. Um, from an early age, yeah, I, I was probably always a leader. And probably, I, probably from an early age, a lot of pressure was put on me. And, you know, that was down to myself because of, you know, my high scores and, you know, underage games from AO. And then, you know, my first couple of games from AO in a league game, my first game, I think I scored 1-7 in my first championship game from AO. I think I scored 1-10. So there was pressure on me. That was as a 13-year-old. And that kind of just, that went on, you know, for, obviously for the rest of my career. So by the time I was 16, um, you know, Captain Karnakon really didn't phase me. You know, I, I didn't think I ever took Captain as a massive responsibility. It was probably just a title that was given on to you. And, you know, you don't all your leading on, on the pitch, not not by words. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's interesting, like, even the fact that when you're 13 breaking on, you might have only been, like, five foot or seven stone, I think, and something, some major and still been able to score 10, or it was 1-7 and 1-10 uh, straight off from the bat. And would you have noticed that like your game developed in a different way as you got older? Or would you kind because of, when you're younger you would have relied on the skill, but whereas when you're getting older and you're kind of growing into like your full mature like body essentially, uh, did you find that your game developed, or how how do you say you would have got your scores from? Yeah, it ob- yeah, obviously developed. You know, no matter how th- right throughout your career, it has to develop. You know, whether it's that you're getting obviously that your body you get bigger and you grow, or it's that you become known and you get double marked or treble marked, or you know that you might have to just reinvent yourself if you're playing as long as I am. So, yeah, I was just very lucky. Um, at the stage when I, you know, I, I became full growth, maybe around sixteen, seventeen. Um, within the Mayo team, we had a very good manager where we had all our success with Mayo. He came in and, yeah, he he had a tendency to try out lots of things. You know, he tried me in a number of different positions in, in the forward line over all the national leagues that I played with him. I, I was going forward, I was corner forward, there was one year I was midfield. So he was always trying out different things and trying to, me to become obviously more creative rather than, you know, just the full forward that the ball is kicked into and, and lots of schools are expected of you. So, yeah, I was lucky kind of from the age of kind of 16, 17 until about 23. He was my coach. So, yeah, he probably taught me so much at the time that I didn't realise and, you know, all the position. He actually probably was the one person that um, turned me into, um, you know, a football nut and knowing everything about the game and, and being able to read the game. Um, I probably... Had a little bit of that before he came in, but he certainly, um, through conversations and, and training, and you know, he he just loved talking about football. You could talk, you know, a couple of hours a, a day on the phone to him about football, and I think that yeah, that kind of helped me develop my game. And as I said, then as you get older yourself, yeah, I mean, you try to develop your game because you can't, you, you know, in Gaelic football, you can't stay stagnant. You have to be moving because you know, um, people people become aware of your strengths and, and know what your weaknesses are. So you're going to have to make your strengths stronger and, and try not have too many weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing I remember, like when reading your autobiography, it was clear that you like, put, not you put on a persona, but you kind of adopted a persona on the pitch where like you didn't really want to show weakness to like both your own players and opposition. Was that part of like, not, there's not, 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 that's not the physical part of your like development as a player, but kind of like the more mental side. And was that like, and na- I'm kind of curious, was that like a natural progression or just you kind of realised that it was beneficial? Yeah, I suppose it was probably a bit of a natural uh, progression, but at the same time, you, you kind of realise it's, you know, um, it's important to do. I, I, like the whole mental side of, of sport, um, I, I suppose I, like, I equate a lot of that back to, 
probably different hardships that you have had grown up in your life. Um, and that can be like obviously losing people, um, you know, or that can be just um, injury. Can be can be defeat, you know. Obviously, losing all Ireland finals or losing big matches, as I said, any of them, any of them type of things, I think makes you mentally stronger. Um, I, I got, I am a big believer. You learn a lot more in defeat than you'll ever win in victory. And so, yeah, obviously for me, obviously I've been through a bit of adversity, you know, in, in um in life and on the football pitch and and you know through injury. So I think yeah, you. you you kind of adapt to all of that and obviously the maturity you get, um, you probably reflect a little bit more. But yeah, I think I was always, um, and I think it's that country upbringing as well and coming from a big family, I was, I was always kind of mentally, mentally strong and, and, you know, had a, had a good belief in myself and growing up. And again, it comes from, from where I'm from as well. You know, I, I came from an excellent club, you know, got right throughout my underage career, um, you know, from under 12 to minor. I think I only ever lost one underage game. Um, and you know, obviously, our senior our senior team has been very successful over the last past twenty plus years. So I think that that comes from that winning mentality as well. So yeah, it's it's probably a mixture of different things, but I think yeah, it's a it's a lot of it is um um you've you've lived life through uh, through adversity, and that adversity sometimes come up, comes out in the football pitch, and you know, normally the the football pitch is the, is the place that you express yourself the best. Um, you know, um, so that's that's probably. Um, where that came from mm-hmm. and um, one thing that a lot of players and teams like kind of struggle with after a while is to like keep that motivation there that momentum like as you said you, you only lost one game as minor and not that many either for seniors in Carnacon uh, like how did you keep the standard higher what was what drove you because um, like some players like you know that might, might have um, a particular matchup that they're looking forward to and they kind of train towards that or that particular goal in mind or but what was in your approach yeah I, I just suppose um I think winning becomes a bit of a drug, um, and the more the more you win, the more you want it. And I suppose, yeah, again, I just say we're very lucky in Carnacon. Um, we had a group. Um, we still have a group that are there that um, you know are highly competitive and very driven and very motivated. And I suppose um, that was right throughout my underage career into my senior career. And I suppose with, with the senior team, especially. Um, when you have younger girls coming in and seeing that drive and motivation and, you know, that, that um, willingness to, to, to work hard to win, I suppose, you know, that comes through the team and, you know, that, you know, breeds from, from one to another and then ultimately that breeds success. So I think it's kind of, you know, younger girls come in and, you know, they have to work hard, but we don't, you know, we don't treat a 14 or 15 year old any differently than we, we treat someone that's in their thirties, you know, it's all based off hard work, and as I said, um, you know whether winning is a drug or whatever is a habit. We just we're just so used to it, and we we've, you know we set standards and we've expectations of everyone that comes into the group, and um, everyone works hard, and um, once they work hard, um, you know we normally get the results. So I suppose that's what it's based off. Um, it's probably just years of having that grown up, um, with club having success, and. Ultimately, that success, um, you know, has followed right through to the seniors. And you know, any any, any underage girl playing for Carnacon that comes up and, and plays in the senior team, you know, um, comes in and, and just works hard. And, and, and thankfully, um, we've had a lot of talented girls that has come in. And um, like you're talking about how like all the girls are kind of treated the same way, like if they're 14 or 15 or 35 or 36, would that be the same for like actually playing the big games, like say all Ireland's, like the way you approached? 
um, a club game, club league game, was the same way as in All Ireland, or would you would you realise that mentally it's a different ball game? Or what would be your approach? No, I I think with a lot of our younger girls, um, yeah, we we expect a lot of them if they're good enough to play, they'll play no matter what their age is. Um, we won't say, oh, she's only fourteen or she's only fifteen. If she's putting her hand up at training and is and is good enough to be on the fifteen, um, yeah, you'll be there. They'll be they'll be on the team. I suppose the only difference between them and, and maybe one of our older players is that, um, it might be their first All Ireland, so that's obviously a little bit more daunting if it's your you know fifth or sixth one. Um, yeah, so you'll obviously um, support them and, 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 you know, on field, you know, because sometimes they might be physically mightn't be as strong as the opposition. You, you probably would look out and text them a little bit. Um, but yeah, you know, you, young ones today, um, and like myself when I was playing your younger, you, you absolutely have no fear. So um, they just go out and they enjoy it. They don't probably think of the, the big occasion. I know when I was younger, it wasn't. It was just another football match. Um, where you get older, you worry about a lot more stuff. So, yeah, as I said, once they're once they're good enough and they're playing well enough, that they'll be on the team. And yeah, the only thing is that we might just um, you know, look out for them a bit more and protect them if um, a, a bigger and stronger player is on them. Yeah, fair enough. And what sort of characteristics would you be looking for in a younger player? Because like you've been around the, like you've been around for about twenty years now, so you've seen a lot of talented footballers go like go through. And is there any particular skills or attributes that they all seem to have, or majority of them? Yeah, I, I think um, the biggest one, I suppose, is hard work. Um, you know, I'm a big believer. Once they work hard and can train hard, then normally um, everything else follows. So yeah, it, you know, hard work is prob- probably the biggest one. Um, that they they come in and they've very little fear. Um, you know, they kind of they're confident and they believe in themselves and they, you know, quietly go about their business. I think that's, you know, another huge one. Um, that a lot of the time young girls can come in and they can get overawed by obviously the people that are there and, um, the position they're in, but once they work hard and, and they've confidence in their own ability, which, you know, as I said, we've been very lucky with plenty of girls that come in. Um, yeah, they're, they're, you know, that's the main characteristics, I suppose, in, in, in a club and in, in a small area where we're from, you know, I, we're obviously going to know a lot of the underage girls that come through. Um, you know, all majority of our senior team at some stage or another will will be coaching an under fourteen, under sixteen, a minor team, or an under twelve team, or an under ten team. So, you know, the younger ones coming up, anyways, um, because you're seeing them around the club, you've trained them at some level. Um, so I think that connection is always good. So as a club, we always make sure that all our underage teams has at least one member of the senior team involved in them, um, and that that makes the step up from underage to senior um certainly a lot easier but i suppose the main characteristic is is for me would be just just hard work um and once they have that they, they normally succeed mm-hmm. fair enough and uh, you touched on the fact that you had you generally have a, a, a players on the on the senior team managing each of the different age groups i'm just kind of curious because you also said that you'd be working from 7 a.m to 12 p.m so like how did you find uh, all these like extra like not extracurriculars but like extra tasks that you might like want to do and maybe you mightn't have the time to like commit to all the all the different ones. Like, how did you make a priority? Yeah, I suppose um, you know I obviously wouldn't have to do it every year. We we try and spread it out. If there's you know obviously twenty five, we'd say on a senior panel, you know you might need only five or six girls involved in any one year. But yeah, I certainly done my stint with the, um, our under tens, twelves, and fourteen teams for 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 a good couple of years. Um, I'm I'm quite good with my time. Um, you know, I, I'm not a person that really sits down too often. Um, 
as most of my friends or family would attest for, I'm not, I'm not very good for more, longer than probably 10 minutes sitting watching television unless it's sport. Um, so, yeah, I always like to be busy and doing stuff. So, yeah, I, I just kind of um, have to be very aware, especially um, when I was playing with Mayo, Carney Conan, playing, playing um, them too, for sure I'd have to be, you know, it was all about time management and trying to fit in a full-time job and other other engagements that, you know, you'd get asked to do because of, of who you are. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it was about time management. Um, and my the only way I could probably describe it is that, yeah, I'd be make sure um, I, if I had to go early to work or needed time off work or work my lunch break that, you know, I kind of just time or planned out my day normally what, what it was going to look like. Um, in saying that, I always found it important every week that I give myself at least a day, if not a half a day, where it was for me and to do things that I enjoyed, whether that was having a lie-in, um, whether that was meeting up my, my friends for coffee, if that was bringing my nieces or nephews to the cinema, whatever it was. I tried to normally do that on a Saturday, um, where a Saturday, if I could have the full day, or if I only could have half a day, I'd probably try and have a Saturday morning Saturday afternoon where, you know, that was my time and everything else then throughout the week was either work, sport or whatever other commitments I had. Um, so, yeah, it's just about planning and prioritising. Um, I think most sports people, um, amateur or professional, are, are very good at planning out their time and they need to be because their, their time is very precious and, and, and they don't have much of it. So, yeah, it, it's amazing. There's 24 hours in a day. You probably sleep seven or eight of them. Um, so you do have 16 hours and there's a lot that can be done in 16 hours. Um, a lot of the time we can spend just waste and do nothing. So I make sure most of my time um, I'm doing something rather than doing nothing. Uh-huh. And for those 16 hours, would you be awake maybe on the Thursday or Friday before an All-Ireland final? Like I know you said you treat all the games the same, but would you have a particular routine, maybe even just a game day routine or the day before the game routine that you generally have? Yeah, um, yeah, uh, yeah. Obviously, if it was in in Mayo, it's normally a Sunday game. Yeah. So as I said, my Saturdays, if if it at all, I, I'm you know, if it's a game, it's a big game. Obviously, it's a Saturday. It's very much time for myself. A bit like that, doing things that I enjoy that kind of take my mind off the game. Um, it certainly wouldn't be to focus on a game at all. Um, obviously, depending on if it was an All Ireland final, if we were to travel on the Saturday or not, we'd say if it wasn't. Um, if it was an All-Ireland final, it was a club one and we were, we were driving on a Sunday morning. The Saturday would just be spent um, with friends and, and, you know, family, niece and nephews, stuff like that. Anything that would take my mind off the game um, for majority of the day. Um, it would be spent eating a lot, carb loading for the day as well. Um, yeah, um, yeah, I wouldn't be one that would think very much about it, the match, the day before the match, because I like to kind of conserve my energy even the morning of the match I'd be I'd be pretty much the same and it's it's probably like maybe two two hours out from the match um that, that I start to probably obviously mentally um tune in and, and, and start to worry about it because um match day is, is quite exhausting and um you know um, most of your energy is used up on nerves and, and thinking about the game. Um so two hours two hours to me um is loads of time before a game to be thinking about it. Um so yeah, certainly the day before a game is 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 my time, and I do things that I enjoy and that can um, take my mind off the game. Mm -hmm. And um, you touched on the fact that it's like quite draining a match day, but I know it's still the similar the same. But maybe your first All Ireland when you're 17 and you had the broken collarbone going in, 
did that give you a chance to maybe, I don't know if the word is enjoy the, the thing moment, but like it wasn't like you were going to be playing the full game in that one. So did you have a chance to, like, did you do the same routine as you would have, even if you were playing the full game? Or can you remember? Yeah, um, no, I probably didn't do the same routine. I was probably, I was probably at still at the stage of devastation because obviously it was just, it was a week before the All Ireland um, that I broke my collarbone, and um, and then I probably spent the earlier part of the week, probably Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, at a couple of different um, doctors and physios and stuff to see was there any chance at all that I could play. Um, I was probably ruled out. I think was maybe with maybe the Wednesday or the Thursday, so. Obviously, there's huge disappointment. Um, you know, obviously, you're excited in, in some hand for the team and all of that. But, you know, um, I was 17. I was bitterly disappointed. Obviously, my mother had died, um, you know, 11 months previous. So, you know, I've, I, I probably had a tough run of it at that stage. So, um, yeah, leading up to match day, it was, it was probably a little bit different than normally would. Did I have time to enjoy it? Probably not. I think you're you're certainly more nervous because you, you don't um you can't impact the match or have any influence over it. So um yeah, I, I certainly didn't enjoy any of it. I think when the final whistle blew, that's the, probably the the first level of enjoyment that you have. Um mostly on all Ireland final days, and most people will tell you the day flies, um the match goes by um in a split second. So um yeah, um the routine was probably a little bit different, but it was more trying to, you know, support. Um, as at that stage, we had a very young team, to support the girls and maybe distract them a little, a little bit from from being too nervous and, and the occasion ahead. So, yeah, it was certainly different. But as I said, um, it, it was wasn't certainly enjoyable or um, watching it from the sideline because it was such a close game. Mm-hmm. And you, you touched on the fact that All Ireland Day goes by pretty quickly. Is there a part that, like, what's like we'll say, and you said that the, after the game is like the most enjoyable part or the bit where you can kind of uh, de-stress a little bit because you, you weren't at the place so you couldn't inf- influence the game. Was there any particular moments that kind of you remember as being like, you're not going to say the pinnacle, but like that was pretty much like the ideal part of the day? Yeah, um, yeah, certainly after any of the All-Irelands, I went kind of that 5, 10, 15 minutes on field is, you know, amazing when that final whistle goes or in case the ladies football, the hooter goes and, you know, the probably 10, 15 minutes in the change room afterwards when it's just, um, you know, just the full squad and, and management and everyone that has been kind of involved in the team and um, that you kind of get that time together because for the next week or whatever the celebrations go on, you don't ever really get that chance where it's just the, the 30 girls and, whatever your backroom team is, say 10 or, 10 or 12 backroom team, probably more, you know, that's 45 of a group. That's the only time you get is in the changing room being together. Um, every other time, uh, you know, whether it's at functions or wherever else, um, even on team buses, you'll always have extra um, and you're dragged from pillar to post. So, yeah, it's it's that final whistle, euphoria and, and, and certainly the dressing room. So it's probably just the half an hour after the match, um, before things go crazy that you really, really enjoy. Um, even in saying that, though, you know, the celebrations were certainly, you know, my first few All-Irelands with Mayo, the celebrations for the week after, um, you know, we, you know, when we meet up with girls and um, have reunions, you're, you're still talking about stories from, from, from nights um, and days, um, certainly the following the week after. So, yeah, they're always brilliant. But, yeah, they, while people say the half an hour after the game, is, is certainly the most um, enjoyable. Yeah, you know, they're, they're dead right. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I remember hearing a story about you. I think it must have been six days after one of the All Ireland final wins, where I think you were dragged out of a pub to play a game the next day or something. And uh, you're, I, I think it might be better if you tell the story. You might remember it, the one I'm on about. Yeah, I, I do. I do remember that. Um, yeah. So obviously, yeah, I think it was uh, one of the All Irelands. We won with Mayo, um, and um, the unfortunate thing for um, for us um, after the All Ireland, we we're normally straight into club championship the week after because. Everything was played pretty quickly. So, yeah, we'd normally have a county final, or, or in this case, it was a, I think it was a Connacht semi final for Kearney Cun. Um, yeah, so I think it came to, we normally tour the county for the week after, um, after an All Ireland. And um, I think it was, a, it was a Saturday, or yeah, I think it was a Saturday we're in um, Lewisburg in, in Mayo, which is a real rural part of Mayo, um, you know, probably good hour away from home um yeah so i still was probably keeping the party going at that stage and yeah we had a we had a connacht uh, i think it was a connacht club semi-final um the next day um against a team from galway up in galway and yeah i think um at one stage our club managers came to find me and had knew that um, i had still hadn't been home so yeah they, they, they came to to rescue me and, and make sure i had a good night's sleep before the match the next day so yeah, the the match was certainly hard going the next day after being uh, been um been partying for six days. But um yeah, it might have taken me about 40, 40 minutes to get into the match. But uh, um I was I think I was suddenly awoke by um the opposition player giving me a thump and yeah, the next twenty minutes I I think I put on my scoring boots and, and luckily enough we won. So um everyone was happy um at the end of it surely. I find that story uh, mad interesting because it's like as I was saying earlier, like sometimes people find it hard to be motivated. And I think in your case, it's just that you had a hangover. But like even the fact that all it took was some, like I think it was Emma O'Malley or one of those girls, just to give you a little thump off the ball to get you going. And yeah. then that kind of, that competitive spirit just kicks in again. Like um, it's very similar to other professional sport and athletes that be well known. Like even, for example, like Michael Jordan in the last dance, there's countless uh, times where that sort of thing happened where a slight of that position I was wondering, did any of those, did that happen um, again? Did, did other people try it again? Or No, I, I, no, I, I wouldn't have had very much off the ball. There'd be, uh, it'd be probably actually more verbal than physical a lot of the time. And certainly for, from a Carney Cunn point of view, we have massive rivalry with a couple of clubs. Obviously, Hollywood and Mayo being one, Kerfin from Galway being another, Kilkerran Clumburn um, from Galway, and that's still a recent one. And, um, we had done a mine from Monaghan. So a lot of the time, um, because I was qu- quite a physical, you know, strong player, uh, physicality probably wouldn't work or the opposition were probably a little bit smaller than, yeah. Um, yeah, a, a lot of verbals and sometimes verbals from the crowd um, would be a, probably another thing that would certainly get you going. Um, yeah, it, it happened happened loads of times. Um, yeah, so, yeah. It, obviously players try it and, and you know supporters try it and yeah it's it's probably not the best thing it's if they if they want a reaction they normally get a reaction but probably the reaction is is to, to kick a, a point or kick a goal or go on a on a, on a five or ten minutes um scoring spree so yeah it, they certainly spur you on um you know any of that kind of negative um i don't like to call it abuse but negative verbals that come you know, either from the stand or from an opposition player is, um, yeah, to me is is is, is brilliant because you know I, I love that it's 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 highly motivating and 
and you know straight away if they're doing that yeah they're they're, they're trying to get under your skin and um yeah i've been too too long around the block now to let anyone really get under my skin uh-huh and uh if you were corresponding the coach and you're managing say for example mayo against some other team and they had a star forward what would you be doing then to get under their skin because clearly you don't think that would work so how would you go about it then if you're the manager yeah, like I, I, I don't think I think the top players that have been around the block. I don't think you're going to get under their skin. Um, I think the biggest thing for if if you're if you're a forward and and you're the manager of, of a team and you want to stop them is is by stopping supply a ball into them. The biggest compliment that you can get if if you see if if, if for example is me and I'm playing with either Karen come or Mayo if if I have to come out and start to try and get the ball around half forward or midfield, you know, the further away from goal they are, the, the less dangerous they are. And it's, it's the same in the case over here. Um, so, yeah, um, you know, certainly tactics-wise, it, it'll be trying to stop the supply of ball um, going into the into, into the key forward um, and, and get them frustrated that they, they move away from goal. Um, yeah, I think a lot of the, the bigger players and, and players that have been around for a while can, you know, you know, probably rise to to any physical or, or verbal um, altercations that they have. Um, you know, they've been too too long around. It might work on on a younger person, but certainly not on someone that's been around for a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, what matchups would you say through the years would have been the ones that you look forward to most? That like you knew you were going to be tested. Yeah, um, there was a lot. Um, you know, through club and county, there's been a lot. Um, obviously, the the great Cork team. You know, from Eamon Ryan's years that won was a 10 out of 11 All-Irelands and you know obviously that was us you know in our prime that we, we ended up playing them um, yeah so they you know I ended up either American obviously Breed Stack who, who's a teammate now with the Giants Angela Walsh um, you know Geraldine O'Flynn Deirdre Riley you know they had stars everywhere in every line Rena Buckley you know um, they hadn't a weakness anywhere so yeah, you, I don't know if you'd say you enjoyed the battles, but yeah, they were certainly the hard ones that you come up against them. And, um, you know, it was very, very difficult to come out on top. But yeah, I certainly relished, you know, um, you know, trying to knock Cork off their pedestal. It didn't happen that very often. It happened a couple of times in league and happened in 2017 in championship. But yeah, it was, yeah, you always want to play against the best players, prove yourself against the best players. And yeah, probably that Cork team, um, were one um Monaghan um and Waterford probably before that and then you know obviously we'd battles with Galway and Connacht and, and there was Dublin as well so yeah there was a number of different players but yeah it's probably that Cork team because they're so successful over such a long period of time that um you know very difficult to come up against but you um you relish the challenge of you know trying to get um certainly an individual battle trying to win it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you touched on the fact that you get to play with Breed Stack now as well out in um, Australia. Is there any other people you've met throughout the years that maybe you haven't been able to play with, but you might have been doing like a sponsorship event or you might have been able to just, you could have been on an all-star uh, trip that you like got a chance to sit down with and like you learned a lot from or you got a few tips from? Yeah, I suppose, yeah. There's been lots of trips that have been on, um, all-star trips. And, you know, they're obviously good ways of um, connecting with people. You know, they're obviously people that you play against on a weekly basis and, you know, probably, you know, have words with or, you know, probably think they're not the nicest people, you know, on the pitch. But obviously when you when you go away on a trip like that, it's a very relaxed trip and, you know, um, it's a very social trip that you, you, you kind of get to know them as people. Um, 
yeah, I suppose any of the times, any of the trips I've been on, um, especially again, I go back to the Cork girls, and um, they were probably the biggest ones that I used to connect with the whole the whole team, um, from Breed Cork, Breed Corkery to Geraldine Flynn, Rena, Angela, Breed, um, Deirdre Riley, uh, Juliet Murphy, all of them, Marisha Kelly. There was loads of them. Um, that would have been on trips. So, you know, they always took me under my wing. There might have been, you know, 10 or 12 Cork girls on a trip and maybe two or three Mayo. So, yeah, we always had, you know, massive respect for each other. So when we're on trips, yeah, you'd often sit down and learn a huge amount. Um, I suppose one person would have been, God rest his soul, was Eamon Ryan, the Cork manager. Um, while he was, um, you know, he was a rival manager for years and, you know, but someone you'd always have looked up to. Um, you know, I thought he was an amazing manager, and um, I think it was the first time I met him was on, on an All Star trip in 2012. Um, and I remember I was afraid to go up and speak to the man, um, and it probably took a, a couple of bottles of beer in um, in a pub to finally find the courage to go up and talk to him. And yeah, ever since then, um, we really had a connection, and um, I'd have made aim and I'd. Uh, been on a couple of All Star trips with them, but I'd have been in contact with them, you know, through through phone and stuff. And any time, you know, we've done well with Karen O'Connor, even when I came to Australia, he'd always ring or send a text congratulating me and stuff. So yeah, he was one that I always picked his brain because he was a really interesting man and the way he coached teams and his um, ideas on football and his philosophies on football was certainly, you know, I learned a huge amount. Um, even when he was. He was manager of, of um, I think, twice on the All-Star trips, and I was lucky enough that I was on his team. Yeah, he was just an amazing, really interesting guy that you could sit and listen to for hours on end. Mm-hmm. And how did you find his management style? Like, I know he didn't really have him for months on an end, but you probably had, like, a few games under him. Like, did you, like, what sort of uh, attributes did he have that made him, like, Eamon Ryan, that made him the 12th? Was it 12 All-Irelands or...? 10 yeah, 11, I think it's at, um, at 11, 10 or 11 All-Irelands. Um, yeah, that's, you know, I probably got more of an insight from talking to Breed in the last couple of months about him, obviously. Um, she said he just was one of these guys that um, didn't need to motivate anyone. He was, the, he was the type of manager that everyone just wanted to pay for. And if you didn't play well, you felt, you felt like you let him down. Um, you know, he, his, his philosophy was based off hard work. Um, and, you know, he'd often say to the girls that, you know, you're um, you're a nun now for the next nine months. You're just going to have to train really hard, just, you know, and if you want to, to, to win in All-Ireland, you're just going to have to train really hard and um, do everything possible, whatever it is, to, um, to win in All-Ireland. So, yeah, I, I think his philosophy was just based around hard work. Um, I know from talking to Breed again, he said he, he would have treated everyone the same. He'd have made everyone feel really important. But at the same time, would have left everyone guessing as to where they stood in the team. So, yeah, she just said he was an amazing man. He's he's a really good communicator. But he's you know he's probably a bit like our coach over here. Um, you know where everyone just really wants to do well for. Um, and you feel like you can never let them down. Um, and I suppose you know speaking about our own coach over here, um, he, the four years I I've been under now, he's the type of type of manager, um that really gets to know his players and, and know about everything outside outside of their of their football career. So he invests a lot of time in, in personally getting to know everyone individually. And I think that has that reaps um you know massive benefits going forward um as a manager. So yeah, I think it's because they're the managers that you don't want to let down and you want to perform for because they invest so much time in you. 
I think Eamon was certainly one of the managers. And so you you definitely touched on the fact that it's the sign of a good manager is really that you want to play well for them as well. But uh, would there be much dialogue under their direction? Like would like someone like Eamon Ryan be someone to you know put a shoulder in the back, or would it be more kind of standoffish? Or with the best managers, best managers that you have, uh, what would be kind of their approach? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's it's diff- different. Females are very different to coach, and I think. Within a female team, you've you've girls that need their hand, you know, put around their shoulder and, and tell them, you know, how well they're doing and how good they are. And then you've probably other girls that might need the opposite. They might need to say, you know, you're not working hard enough, and um, you know, I need you to do more. And um, so I think it's to getting to know what each individual player needs. And um, I, you know, I'm probably the type of player that rather be criticised and told I'm not working hard enough, and that's not good enough. I'll get motivation from that, but I know on our team over here, there's certainly girls that needs to be told and I'm reassured that they're performing very well. So it's the manager that can identify um, what each player needs because each player is different, you know, um, I especially think that's in, in a women's space. So as I said, the, the way they learn that is to invest in each player and find out what's going on in their lives outside of sport because, you know, obviously everyone has you know, challenges and, and, and things going on in their life. And if the manager can connect with them through that and and, and, and know their personal circumstances, I think then they learn what type of approach um, is good for each individual. And as I said, it, it's certainly an individual thing. Collectively, um, it's not a thing where a manager can, you know, treat, you know, not treat, but um, motivate um, each girl um, collectively. It has, to be, it has to be certainly done individually. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. And then um, you've had a chance to be over in Sydney now working with those kind of managers. And you touched earlier on that you ha- that you work in the same facility as the men. Have you had many interactions with, like, we'll say, famous Australian sports stars? Or, like, have you had a chance to even meet um, people from different sports, like maybe rugby union players or rugby league players or anything? Yeah, um, yeah, we have a bit of interaction. Obviously, we have a huge interaction with, with, with their, our male team. So, yeah, some of them will be very big names over here. Um, in Australia, um, obviously in the in the club, um, so yeah, we'd have a lot of top AFL men's players. Probably three of the, three of the biggest ones would be Toby Green, Lockie Whitfield, and, and Stephen Canelio. Um, you know, that's only to mention a few. Um, in, in regards to other sports, um, yeah, we've had um, you know, we mix up training and all times. We've had rugby um league girls come in and train with us, and we've trained with them. Um, you know, obviously not doing the full context stuff, but We've come in kind of for guest sessions. We've done guests. We've done um, joint session with the men's team. So yeah, you, you you'd learn. Um, we've a lot of cross quarters on our team. So we've girls that have represented um, Australia at soccer, netball, uh, cricket. So yeah, we've a lot of cross quarters. So yeah, you'd have a lot of interactions with different sports. So yeah, and even just um, you know over here, they're absolutely mad mental about sports. So. Um, there's so much sport on television and um, even the way um, females in sport here, over here, you know, how they're looked after, you know, you'd go to a watch, you'd go and watch a lot of female sport, whether that's soccer, cricket, netball, um, you know, state of origin, whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, you, you kind of learn a lot from from that. Mm-hmm. And do you find, do you think it was an advantage playing different sports growing up? Like as I said, you played play a bit of rugby, soccer, football, clearly, and then you went to the AWFL. Because um, there's some people like, I even just there, I was doing a bit of training myself, and I met a man who's 
uh, he's only letting his son play hurling from under 15 on because he reckons that's the best approach. So I just found it interesting because chatting to Jerry Brennan, he was saying that it was kind of an advantage uh, playing different sports growing up. Or what would be your opinion on it? Yeah, no, my opinion would be hugely, it's a huge advantage to play different sports. When I was growing up, I played Gaelic football, um, soccer, basketball. Um, I used to you know, play a lot of actual handball because we lived beside a handball alley. Our school was right beside a handball alley. Um, and then we played indoor soccer. We played, growing up in national school, I played so many different sports. Um, and then obviously I went on to play soccer, rugby, um, from a senior age in basketball um, throughout my um, secondary school. To me, it's been a huge benefit to, to marry all the sports because you learn so much from different sports. And certainly from a point of view of AFL, <coughs> having the rugby background has been massive for me um, around the physicality and the tackle side of things. So, yeah, I'd be very much don't ever limit um, young people to, to one sport. There will be a time when sport becomes a lot more serious and, and you want to go down the avenue of representing Mayo or, or whether it's Ireland or whatever it is, whatever the sport is, you're probably going to have to choose a sport. But that certainly doesn't have to happen till, in my in my opinion, till, till at least you're in your teens, whether that's a 15 or 16-year-old. Um, you can certainly manage to be playing a, a number of sports. And I, I'd certainly be an advocate to try as many as you can right up to that age. Mm -hmm. no because you'll definitely have a different perspective looking at your own like primary sport by playing other ones as well and with that kind of in mind is there any like tactics or any particular um skills that you've noticed in the awfl that you'd like to bring back to like to mayo football if um if you're coaching or if you're playing again yeah um, there's uh, i think we've brought more to the to the afl rather than the other way around mm -hmm. um Certainly from an agility point of view, um, you know, um, the only other sport, probably netball, um, that would have the same agility as Gaelic footballers do. Um, so, yeah, I think we probably bring bring a lot over here that a lot of the Aussies don't have. And um, even just, you know, li listening to matches and commentators think we're very fast on our feet and, and quick and stuff, which we are. Um yeah, from a tactics point of view, and yeah, there's there's probably yeah, there's been so much time on tactics and structure over here, comparing to what we we, we do at home. Um, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, that's just the way AFL is. Um, yeah, so there's been a huge amount of time on structures and plays, and it's very play based, and it's very um, you know, if the ball is in one area of the field, how we set up as a forward forward division. Um, is very different to a, if the ball is in another area of the field. So the tactical side of it, yeah, there is certainly things like we do a huge amount on, on you know, leading leading patterns and leading lanes, stuff like that. There is there is a couple of different things that you could bring home. Um, but the games are, in some ways, they're poles apart. Um, you know, AFL is is quite stop start. Um, where Gaelic football is, you know, quite you know, it's a it's a more flowing game, especially ladies football. So. Yeah, there's been things, you know, when I've come back that, you know, certain drills and stuff that we've introduced um, to club football for sure. Um, yeah, and there is, as I said, there's loads of learnings that that, that we, we, we bring as many as we can over. Um, but I do think there's probably more learnings that you can bring from Gaelic football to AFL rather than from AFL to Gaelic football. Uh -huh. And uh, what sort of as aspects of AFL did you find like trickiest to pick up? Um, 
obviously there's the biggest one obviously is obviously the ball it's a different shape so the whole um kicking of the ball just takes a little while but you, you again you get used to that um after that a lot of the other irish girls because they hadn't had the physicality side of it probably found the physicality side of it hard I, as i said i was lucky enough i played rugby and, and i absolutely loved the physicality side of it i loved the tackle um, you know, I love being tackled or trying to break away from a tackle. So, you know, that to me wasn't a problem. But I know for for other Irish girls, you know, it was a it was a big shock. Um, everything else is probably much the same. I think obviously, um, the other one that I'd say is that as Irish girls, you know, and playing Gaelic football, we don't use our body. Over here, you can use your body so much more. Um, you know, obviously you can shoulder you can bump off the ball you can push and shove um so obviously like for an example if the ball has been kicked in and it's american contest between me and a defender like i can push my defender once it's not in the back so it's it's to remember that you can use your body if the ball is to be one in front and two of us are sprinting towards it that i can push them off um so Again, things that aren't inherent to us that we don't do instinctively are, are things that are really important that we um, kind of need to remember. Um, and that's probably the biggest thing. Um, we'll all do the ex in, uh, extinct or the things that we do at home instinctively. We'll do them in AFL. The things we're, we're not used to doing at home, we have to think of them. So, yeah, normally, you know, going out to a training session or a game, you'll focus on one or two diff new things that you want to work on on, on match day or on training days because if you try to load yourself five or six things it becomes too much so yeah we're, we're normally told to go out and, and concentrate on using your body or um whatever whatever else they want us to work on ground balls mm -hmm. and uh, is there any particular girl on your team now that you reckon be a brilliant gay footballer that's like an aussie now that you put in into the mayo colors yeah there's, there's probably a few um i've actually taken a couple of training sessions over here um, with Gaelic football clubs, and I, I've brought a few of them down. Um, yeah, we've kicked, we've kicked a Gaelic football around with a few of them in, um, in in the cage or the indoor facility we have. Yeah, so there's a few of them that that certainly make it. I'd say I'd say that struggle they, they struggle um with the non-contact nature of the sport. They're, they they struggle to find out how we take the ball off each other because obviously here the way they take the ball off each other here is tackling. So, um, yeah, there, there's a, be a few um, with a couple of sessions under their belt that certainly be well able to take up the sport. Fair enough, yeah. And what's been, like, the best experiences you've had out in Sydney, aside, like, away from the sport? Like, have you had to go, have you got to go to any events or anything in particular? Yeah, I've, yeah, I've been lucky. Um, I've, be, I've been at loads of different things. Um, yeah, I've been at um, probably the, one of the biggest sporting events I was at was two years ago. Um, there's Anzac Day, which falls very soon, sometime in April. So there's a big clash between Collingwood and Essendon on Anzac Day in the MCG. It's normally a full crowd, normally um, close to 100,000. So um, I was lucky enough, Conor McKenna actually was playing with Essendon at the time. So he got me tickets for the game and he, he was um, playing in the game. So that, that was a big, massive sporting occasion. Um, to see and to even be at the MCG when there's a when there's a full crowd in is you know is pretty amazing, yeah. So experiences like that, um, you know, have been at um so many different sporting events over here. Like as I said, sport is just so so big. Um, yeah, the women's the women's World Cup cricket was on was it the year before last. 
um, in Australia, and some of it was held actually. Um, our, our our team have a stadium here called Giant Stadium. It's in the Olympic Park. Um, so I went to the semi-finals of the Women's World Cup um, one night, and I was um, Australia played India. Um, I've been to a couple of cricket games over here, but I couldn't get over the atmosphere, and it was all based off the Indians because they're so they're absolutely crazy about cricket. So even though they were playing Australia. The crowd was all for India, and there must have been, you know, forty or fifty thousand at, at this women's cricket game. So, um, you know, even to see things like that, um, the women's World Cup final it was held in the MCG to a full, full, I think, nearly hundred thousand. So to see a women's cricket match have a hundred thousand at it is absolutely amazing, and and things that you'd never think you'd see. Uh -huh. Did you give Did you give a hand to cricket? Did you try it? Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, as I said, we have an indoor facility, so we do always mess around, whether it's with basketball or Gaelic football or soccer. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've tried to hit it a few times and bowl it a few times. Um, yeah, when, when the, when the, we've a, we've a girl that plays cricket actually, um, as well as, as, as semi professionally. So when she bowls the ball at me, yeah, there's no chance of me hitting it. But it's one of the other girls that might have a chance hitting it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a trickier sport than it looks. Yeah, no chance for another career change now. No, I think I I don't think that's one. Anyways, it might there might be another career change, but it might be cricket. Fair enough, fair enough. That makes sense. Um, yeah, thanks a million, Cor, for this. Uh, I know it's kind of late your time now, but nearly half eleven. No uh, so I appreciate it a lot, and uh, best of luck. And sure, I know the season's wrapped up there now for yourselves, but I uh, still have a few more months to enjoy without being in quarantine. Yeah, exactly. Get back to playing club football whenever that might be. Mm -hmm, for sure. All right, thank you. And, uh, no bother at all. Talk to you. Bye. Yeah. Bye bye. That's the end of another episode. I hope you've taken something away from this, and I'll catch you in the next one. Until then, good luck. <laughs>